Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of our Center Street Church family, and also those of you who are joining us online uh, with the rest of our family uh, here in Calgary, uh, across Alberta and our nation, and also other parts of the world. Um, as Christ followers, we believe that, that um, Jesus is alive and, and he's really with us all the time. He wants to cultivate a friendship with us all the time. And so we celebrate his res- resurrection uh, every day in a way. But it is uh, a very uh, meaningful uh, to just put aside a day every year just to remember and to celebrate that he is risen. Amen. Now, I must say, it's very strange for me to be speaking to you in our central campus worship center with no one here uh, but those operating the cameras and the sound and other technologies needed uh, to live stream this service. Uh, But given the pandemic that we're facing, I'm really grateful uh, for technology that makes it possible for, for thousands of you to worship with us online at such a time as this. Now, I know that this is a challenging time for all of us in one way or another. You know, someone called me just this past week and I I asked them, you know, how are you doing uh, with all this isolation stuff? And he said, I am bored out of my mind. Well, I suspect that may be true uh, for many of you right now. Because it seems to me that a great pastime these days for many people is texting or emailing coronavirus jokes to everyone that they know. Um, Here's just a sampling of some of them that I got. Uh, Someone wrote this. When Noah entered the ark, he only took two of everything. Try and remember that the next time you go shopping. Someone else made the astute observation that in light of the salons being shut down, we're only about three weeks away from knowing everyone's true hair color. A parent of young children wrote this. It's tiring babysitting my mom's grandkids. Can someone tell her to come and get them already? And then a note that my wife Gwen sent to our kids. She wrote, how long is this social distancing thing supposed to last? Your father keeps trying to get into the house. And then one more note from an individual who is obviously enjoying this season of isolation. He writes this, this is the first time in history we can save the human race by staying at home and doing nothing. Let's not mess this up. You know, it's it's good to laugh in times like these, or at least to crack a smile. But the reality is this pandemic has turned our world upside down. Not in my lifetime have we had a crisis of this magnitude. Nothing is normal. Almost everything has changed. Remember when not shaking hands was considered rude, a sign of arrogance? Well, now You're a role model if you refuse not to shake hands. A few days ago, I just needed to get out of the house and I went for a walk. And I kid you not, when people saw me coming, I'm talking a half block away, they immediately crossed the street to avoid getting too close to me. I felt like I hadn't taken a shower in a year. 
But you see, this is just one example of how things in our world that we have known, that we have trusted in, have been turned on their head. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. People are concerned about their health, their jobs, uh, how they're going to make ends meet. And still others are very concerned about what life is going to look like when the worst of this pandemic is over. This crisis has hit us all deeply because our sense of security and our sense of safety has been shattered and our vulnerability and mortality has been exposed. We're used to hearing about pestilence in other parts of the world and we've become almost indifferent to it, but no longer. In the same way that many of us can still vividly remember the terrorist attacks in the United States back in September 11th, 2001. I'm convinced that the events surrounding this pandemic will be forever etched on our minds of the time we received a wake-up call of sorts, alerting us to the fact that many of the things that we've put our hope and our trust in are not as trustworthy or secure or as safe as we once thought. Well, that brings us to the Easter story, because as we're going to see in a moment, those who knew Jesus, and particularly those who were close to Jesus, experienced a similar kind of wake-up call uh, through the events surrounding Christ's death and resurrection. Let me explain by first giving some of the background leading up to the arrest and the crucifixion of Christ. During the time that Jesus was on earth, Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. And every Israeli, including those following Jesus, dreamed of the day that they would be freed uh, from Roman oppression. There were prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures about a deliverer, a Messiah, who would set them free and would usher in a new kingdom, which they believed included a new political and economic system that would provide safety and security and health and prosperity. However, they've pretty much given up hope of that ever happening in their lifetime. That is, until they met Jesus. They had never met anyone like Jesus. His wisdom was profound. His personality and his teaching totally captivating and his power, well, they had never seen such power displayed before. They witnessed Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, walk on water, and calm the raging sea. Their hope in Christ grew with each passing day. Surely this man, Jesus, was the promised one, the Messiah, the political military leader who would lead a revolution to overthrow Rome so that the world would know that the God of Israel is God. But then in a matter of days, everything changed and their world was turned upside down. Not unlike our world has changed through this pandemic. Jesus was arrested. Even though he told his disciples more than once that this would happen and that his kingdom was not of this world. In other words, it wasn't military in nature. They just refused to hear it or to believe it. Given the supernatural power that he possessed, it, is, it, it was just simply inconceivable to them that an earthly power 
could possibly stand up to Jesus, much less overpower him. As far as the disciples were concerned, his talk of being arrested and of dying just simply couldn't happen. But then it did. Within matters of hours, Jesus was arrested, tried, and convicted by a circus court, scourged mercilessly, and then crucified on a cross. When Jesus breathed his last on that accursed cross, his followers were devastated. Their hope that Jesus was the one to bring Rome to its knees evaporated, and they scattered like frightened sheep without a shepherd. Peter headed home, and he went back fishing. In the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we read that a man named Cleopas and another follower of Christ, they also left Jerusalem to go to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked and talked about the events of the previous days, Jesus came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them what they'd been talking about, and verse 18 says this, one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who knows not, uh, who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, they asked. I'm sorry, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now notice they said, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The hope that is spoken of here is not wishful thinking. It's not naive optimism like, you know, I hope it doesn't snow today or I hope the sermon won't go too long today. <laughs> now, now that's wishful thinking. No, the hope the disciples had was that Jesus would be the Messiah, the deliverer, that he would come through for them. But when Jesus took his last breath on the cross, their hope died with him. Good Friday was their dark night of the soul. They were disillusioned, they were discouraged, and probably even embarrassed for trusting Jesus so completely. But let's not be too hard on them. We've all been there, haven't we? Haven't we all put our trust in something that we believed was a sure thing, only to discover later that we'd placed our hope in the wrong thing? Some of you put your trust in someone that you were convinced was the real deal, only to, only to be betrayed, to be hurt or abused instead. Others of you put most of your savings in an investment that promised a great return, but the whole thing went sideways, and what you hoped would bring a quick return turned out to be a complete loss. Some of you made huge sacrifices at work, hoping all the extra hours that you invested would lead you to a promotion that you were longing for. And it was looking so promising, moving in such a good direction until the pandemic hit. 
And now you're not even sure you're going to have a job when it's all over. Some of you hoped that if you just owned your dream home and vacation home and had all the right toys and a certain amount of cash in the bank, that you would finally be happy and content and that your marriage and family life would be amazing. But here you are. You've achieved all that and more. And yet as you've slowed down during this crisis and you've reflected on your life and what really matters in life, you have to admit that you're not doing as well as you thought you'd be doing. You have all the stuff that you wanted, but you've been so busy trying to pay for it all that you find yourself saying far too often to your children, son, not now, but we'll get together another time. We're going to have a good time then, son. More than once, you've caught yourself thinking, is this it? Is this all that there is? What you hoped would bring you true satisfaction hasn't turned out the way that you believed it would. Many of us, I'm sure, can identify with the disciples of Jesus and the state of hopelessness, discouragement, disillusionment, and uncertainty that they experienced when they saw Jesus die on the cross. You see, hope is to the spirit what oxygen is to the body. Without it, we die. Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. And folks, between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, this is where the disciples were at. They were overcome with a sense of hopelessness, uncertainty, and despair. But then something happened that would not only bring them out of hiding and deep discouragement, but radically change their lives and their perspective and convictions and give them a renewed hope, a fiery passion and boldness that God would use to turn the world upside down in a good way. Something happened that motivated them to leave their occupations, sell their possessions, boldly proclaim the truth despite facing prison and torture and death. And that something was more than a missing body or an empty tomb. No, that something was nothing less than personally encountering the resurrected Christ. In fact, I believe that one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection, and there are many, is how it changed the, uh, the disciples of Jesus. You see, there are those who try to explain away the resurrection story, claiming the disciples actually stole the body of Jesus and then they concocted a lie that he was alive. But with the exception of the Apostle John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos near the end of his life, basically to die there alone, the rest of the disciples were all martyred for their faith. The kind of boldness, resolve, and commitment that these disciples had did not come about by believing a lie, especially a lie that they would have... Uh, been involved in creating. We know people like religious extremists, for example, will die for what they believe is true, even if their cause is misguided or deluded or just wrong. But emotionally healthy people will not die for what they know to be false. And yet the truth is, Jesus' disciples boldly declared uh, for over 40 years 
They had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And yet, despite beatings and stonings, imprisonment, the threat of death itself, not one of them caved. There's only one explanation for the sudden transformation that occurred in the life of the disciples of Jesus. And that is they actually saw and met the risen Christ. Friends, the resurrected living Christ is the basis of our hope in life. And that's what we celebrate this weekend. It's not about chocolate bunnies or Easter eggs. It's a reminder that Jesus lives and that our faith and ultimate hope is found in him. Now, in the time remaining, I want to get real practical and explain why the resurrection of Jesus is the basis of true hope, why we can lean on him completely and trust him with our lives, with our fears and our uncertainties, everything that concerns us today. Well, first of all, because Jesus lives, we know that his claims are true. Jesus was more than a great teacher who gave good advice. People don't get crucified for giving good advice. Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God. Jesus said, I and my father are one. In John 5, 18, it says the religious leaders, they tried to kill Jesus because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is why they wanted him dead. And when they, when, when they had him crucified, if he had stayed dead, well, that would have been the end of it. But you see, that wasn't the end of it. A few days later, he was walking around, which proved that he wasn't deluded or a deceiver, as they claimed, but that he was telling the truth. You see, whereas other religious teachers put their teachings out front, and they say, follow my teachings, follow this path to find the way, Jesus put himself out front and said, follow me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's the thing. If the resurrection ever happened, if Jesus is still dead, then all of his claims and his promises are meaningless and they hold no authority at all. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 14, he writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul says, look, if, if there is no resurrection, then we got nothing. It means Jesus isn't Lord and God, as he claimed to be, and so our Christian faith is essentially worthless. And we may as well pack it up and call it quits. In verse 32, Paul goes on to say, if there is no resurrection, we may as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we're not going to be raised from the dead either, which means this life is it. It's all she wrote. And that we have no God-ordained purpose or meaning in life either. And if that's the case, says Paul, I mean, if this is our only shot at life, then we may as well live for ourselves. We may as well party hard, max out our credit line, and eat the entire box of donuts. 
because this is as good as it's going to get. But make no mistake, says Paul in verse 19. If our only hope is only in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. He's saying we're to be pitied because we'll have missed the whole point of life and have huge regrets and despair one day. You see, that's where you end up, logically, if that is your worldview. But, says Paul in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And folks, that changes everything. It means that he is Lord and God, and therefore his claims and his promises are true. It means we are not a chance collection of prebiotic soup, but we're actually his special creation with a God-given purpose in life. It means that Jesus is not one of many ways to God, but he is the way, the only way to the Father and to eternal life as he claimed to be. Furthermore, because Jesus lives means he is Lord and God, and therefore what he taught is true and the Bible he authored is true. Now, practically, that means we can't ignore or explain away passages that we don't like or that we don't agree with. We can't pick and choose what principles and precepts we will follow and which ones we won't. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He writes, if Jesus is alive, then he is Lord. And you're going to have to accept all that he said. On the other hand, if Jesus is still in the grave then you need not worry about anything, he said. You see, there is no middle ground with Jesus. He never intended for there to be. If Jesus is alive, it makes no sense at all to be partially surrendered to him. If he lives, then he is Lord, and he's totally worthy of our worship and total devotion. That's the first reason we can place our hope totally in Christ because his resurrection proves he is who he claimed to be, which is our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Secondly, because Jesus lives, our worth and identity is based in him and him alone. Jesus came to show us that we're going to be restless, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled in life until we put our hope and trust in God. The psalmist put it this way, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. If you believe that Jesus lives, it means that your career, your education, your looks, your fame, your money, your possessions don't define your worth. For example, if your hope is based on your money and possessions, what will it profit you If the moment you breathe your last, you realize that you gained the whole world, but you don't know God, to whom you're going to have to give an account. Or if you build your identity on how good-looking you are, and your beauty fades over time, and trust me, it will, what will the basis of your identity be then? If you build your identity around your spouse or your children, and they reject you or leave you, in death 
What's the basis of your identity then? If you build your identity on your career and your job is eliminated or you're laid off, what's the basis of your identity then? Here's the reality. God has so designed life that everything we place our ultimate hope in outside of Jesus will ultimately disappoint us. C.S. Lewis warned about this. He said, when you give to anyone or anything the place that belongs only to God, you will always be disappointed and unsatisfied. Make no mistake, our true identity is not based on what our culture says we are. It's not based upon what other people say we are. No, our identity is based on who our living Lord says we are. And we're a royal priesthood children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, precious children whom he loves and died for. That's who we are. And folks, that can never be taken away from us because he lives. Furthermore, because Jesus lives, our past regrets and failures need not define us. One of the many reasons that I believe uh, in the resurrection story but also in the validity of the Bible is because the people that God inspired and guided to write the scriptures were real people who failed, who blew it big time and their failures and their imperfections were included in the Bible. For example, Peter stood up in front of all the other disciples one day and he said, Jesus, you can count on me. Everyone else may desert you, but not me. And yet, the night that Jesus was arrested, he didn't have the courage to admit to a servant girl that he even knew Jesus. In one conversation, um, Peter did everything he said he would never do. And he was devastated. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like you blew it so badly that you could never be forgiven and that you would have to carry uh, that regret and that guilt the rest of your life? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus is still in the grave, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you're still in your sins. In other words, you're still saddled with the guilt and the deep regret, and you will be the rest of your life. But because Jesus lives all that changes. Your spouse may never forgive you. Your parent, child, friend, or coworker may never forgive you. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. Forgiveness isn't yours to give or to withhold. Neither is forgiveness anyone else's to give or to withhold. Steve May says, the only one who has the power to forgive is the one who has power over death. And that is Jesus. And because Jesus lives, he will forgive you absolutely, completely, without fail, when you come to him humbly and in repentance. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus came back 
to life, to set you free from your past and to bring you back to life spiritually. He is far more interested having an authentic friendship with you than he is making you pay for your train wrecks. My question is, have you embraced the living Christ and his forgiveness? And then fourthly, because Jesus lives, we need not face our problems alone. His resurrection proves that he is stronger than any failure, any loss or disappointment. No situation is beyond his awareness or power. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, whatever pain, loss, disappointment you may be dealing with right now, because Jesus lives, you can know that he's aware of it. And he will make all things work out for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. Now that's not to minimize the pain or the, or, or the loss or the evil or whatever it is that you're facing. It simply means that the story isn't over. Cancer does not have the final word. The marriage breakdown does not have the final word. Bankruptcy does not have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Because Jesus lives, we can lean into him with our problems and our fears and our concerns. We can trust him because we know he is good and that he has our best interests at heart in all things and therefore is totally trustworthy. We can sleep peacefully at night, even when our life feels upside down and out of control because we believe he's alive and very much in control. And the same power that raised him from the dead is available to help us live in victory. And then finally, because Jesus lives, our life does not end at the grave. When death comes, the question on the mind of every loved one is, is that it? Is this where it all ends? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death does not have the final say. Because Christ has been raised from death, we too shall be raised if we put our trust in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die in this life, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, this is our living hope. Because Jesus lived, death is not the end. Heaven is real. And as he said, as he claimed, Jesus is the way to heaven, to the Father, to eternal life. So let me ask you in closing, in what or in whom are you trusting? What is your hope in? Whatever or whoever it is, how reliable will they be in the end? How sure are they? I submit to you that there is only one source of hope that is absolutely, totally, irrevocably, completely reliable. And that is my Jesus.
No one will ever love you more than Jesus does. He died to prove how much he loves you and me. And he rose again to prove that he is all-powerful and totally trustworthy. If you're discouraged today, if you're feeling defeated today, most likely you're living on the wrong side of the resurrection. You're still trying to make sense of your life and your circumstances without the living Christ. The empty tomb reminds us that even though sometimes our circumstances feel like it's Friday, Resurrection Sunday is a coming. The empty tomb proclaims that no situation is hopeless because Jesus lives. We serve a living God, a living Savior, and that changes everything for life and for eternity because it means that Jesus is part of every equation, and if he is part of every equation, we have reason. Oh, do we ever have reason to hope because with Jesus, all things are possible. But make no mistake, if you want that hope, you have to make up your mind about Jesus. If you're not convinced that the resurrection is true, then I'm going to challenge you to examine all the compelling evidence there is for the resurrection. And there's lots. I did a summary of some of that evidence in a series called Why Believe, which you can find on our website. I challenge you to look that up. But please don't push this matter off. Make this a front burner item in your life because as we've learned, if Jesus lives, then that has huge implications for your life. And if you ignore him, you will be heading in a direction that you will deeply regret one day when you stand before him. You know, it saddens me, but my observation is that many people today they do not take the resurrection seriously. In some cases, they just flat out reject it. Not because the evidence isn't there, but because they want to be their own God. They want to run their own life. They don't want God intruding into their affairs. So they just dismiss it all. Some people want to believe in Jesus. They even say they believe in Jesus, but they don't want to follow Jesus. They believe Jesus was a great teacher and a, a good man, but can't accept him being God, particularly a God that they need to follow and answer to one day. But you see, simply believing that Jesus was a good man is misguided because good people don't rise from the dead. And a good man wouldn't have made the claims that Jesus made about himself if they were false. And that's been the point of this entire message. There is no middle ground with Jesus. He never intended there to be. Either he is alive or he is dead. If he is dead, then he was a liar, he's a lunatic, and we are left to ourselves with no hope. But on the other hand, if he is alive, then he is Lord. And he is the source of life and truth and hope and worthy of our worship and our total devotion. There is no in-between. Max Licato puts it this way. When it comes to Christ, you've got to choose. Call him crazy 
or crown him as a king. Dismiss him as a fraud or declare him to be God. But don't play games with him. Don't call him a great man. Don't clump him with Moses, Elijah, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, or Confucius. He didn't leave that option. He is either God or godless. Heaven sent or hell born. All hope or all hype. But nothing in between. You know, friends, I live for Jesus. I trust Jesus and I place all my hope in him because he's alive. I have no doubt that he rose from the grave and that he lives in me and through me. And I have found that he is a rock upon which you can stand. He's a shelter, a fortress in times of storm and that he will never leave you or forsake you. Please don't ignore the truth that you've heard today. I challenge you to act on it and reach out in faith in the living Christ who loves you and has been pursuing you all your life. Wherever you are right now, in your living room and bedroom or wherever it is you are, I'm going to invite you right now to close your eyes and to talk to God. We're going to take a few minutes right now just to give everyone the opportunity to talk to the Lord. And here are some things that you may want to include in your prayer. Thank him for dying on the cross for your sins and regrets. Surrender your ego to him. Acknowledge your brokenness to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and regrets. Invite him to Invade your life. And ask God for the grace to follow Jesus from now on and to, and to change your life from the inside out. Now, if you still have questions or would like to talk with someone or pray with someone, just text the word prayer to 403-293-3900 and one of the pastors will be in touch with you shortly. The number will be on the screen if you didn't get that number down. And then just a word to those who are already Christians. Perhaps today you realized in a new way that even though you've believed that Jesus is alive, you haven't been following him like he is alive. You've been half-hearted in your devotion to him and to his word. You believe Jesus is alive, even that he is Lord. But you have to admit that he's not your Lord because you've not surrendered everything to him. You're still holding on really tight to your own agenda. You're still determined to be in control. You know his teachings, but you have to admit that you're still stubbornly refusing to be the spouse that he calls you to be, to be the parent that he calls you to be, to be the friend he calls you to be, to be the employer or the employee he calls you to be, or the Christ follower he calls you to be. You're still picking and choosing what you will follow 
and obey. Take this time to put aside all of the excuses and surrender these things to him and ask him to help you live each day going forward with a new awareness that we serve a risen Savior who wants to speak into our lives and have a relationship with us on a daily basis. So wherever you are today, whatever your situation, take a moment now and talk to the Lord.